This is Moving Pictures. I'm your host, Brent Gunn, and today we have a little bit of a different setup. Today is our first guest, Kevin Corbett. He's a professor here. Kevin, how about you uh, introduce yourself? Sure. Um, I'm a professor in the School of Broadcast and Cinematic Arts. Um, I teach a couple of film history classes and a screenwriting class. And with us, as always, is... Mitch, our right-hand man, our funny man. Hello, everyone. This is Mitchell Kakalka, news editor for Central Michigan Life, and generally pretty cool dude, I think. Today we're talking about screenplays, and uh, I really wanted to have you on because you seem to be a very passionate person about cinema, which I, I think I would consider myself a pretty passionate person about cinema as well. But there's a few things I really wanted to talk to you about today, but first off, just to kind of you know dip into the water... Who are some of your favorite screenwriters and some of your favorite screenplays, just so we have like have a idea of where you come from? Um, well, currently my favorite screenwriter, well, there's probably a couple. Um, one um, is a screenwriter who has recently directed a couple of his own films, and that's Charlie Kaufman. Yep. Um, and probably uh, people ask me all the time what my favorite films are, and that's virtually impossible. Or my favorite film, <laughs> I can't pick one. But if I had to pick five, I would probably put Charlie Kaufman's um, uh, uh, um, adaptation, and um, <laughs> we're gonna watch it in class. Synecdoche, New uh, no, York. No, no, I'm not gonna fan of synecdoche, oh, um, yeah. which we could talk about. But um, uh, uh, the Jim Carrey, Eternal Sunshine, Eternal Sunshine, of yeah, 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 right, right, yeah. Um, I, he's, I'm, I, I love his stuff a lot. Um, but then there's a guy, um, a writer-director, Alexander Payne. I don't know if you know him. Mm-hmm. That sounds Definitely. familiar. Um, and his stuff, um, it, 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 I, it, I just, it just really strikes me on a lot of levels. So those would probably be my two current favorites. So, so you know, with uh, adaptation specifically, that seems to be a really reoccurring film taught in a lot of screenwriting classes about structure because the whole – point of the film really kind of delves into the structure yeah, of yeah. creating a yeah, film. Yeah. You know? um, yeah. From the start, <laughs> the Nicholas Cage playing Charlie Kaufman is like a film within a film. Um, and he's constantly uh, struggling with how to write a, a, well, in this case, an adaptation of a novel, but basically a, 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 a sellable um, or a satisfying uh, screenplay, but he doesn't want to do it like it's always been done. Right. Um, and the flip side of that is his twin brother, also played by Nicolas Cage, <laughs> who happens to be the only fictional character ever nominated for an Academy Award for Best <laughs> Screenplay, which is pretty funny. Uh, <laughs> but um, And he's writing a much more traditional three-act structure, plot-driven piece. Thriller, twist ending. That, kind of, yeah, yeah, and has a... Um, but but the, there's the, the interesting thing about adaptation. It has that ending which is it's almost a Hollywood style ending. Mm-hmm. It's critiquing the very thing that it ultimately sort of succumbs to, if you want to think. Yeah, about the first time I showed my girlfriend that movie, she kind of had like whiplash at that part where they're like in the jungle. <laughs> yeah, She's yeah, like, what, yeah. what happens? <laughs> is this the same? There's a touching moment between the brothers. Yeah. <laughs> Can I ask why you don't like uh, Synecdoche, New York? Um, self-indulgent. <laughs> uh, as a because I write as well, yeah, and um, I just felt like he I used the term satisfying uh earlier, and I think he absolutely loves that kind of thing where you're writing about writing and you're you're getting so enveloped in your own story, but you also have to keep the audience in mind yeah. um and 
Uh, it just got it because that's the one where the set just gets ridiculously bigger and bigger and bigger. Yeah. To, to the point where it's a full size city or something. And I felt like he j- he did that exact same thing. He just got he got so enveloped in his own story. He kind of lost track of the idea that okay, well you got to satisfy the audience at the end, which is a line from <laughs> adaptation. Whatever you do, wow them in the end. And I was not wowed at the end of that. Mm. So I. I, I like that movie a lot, but I think I like it more in theory than yeah, I do really right, exactly. like watching it. I appreciate it. Exa- exactly. I appreciate what he was doing, but not the end product. It's, I had a similar it, experience with the movie. I, I'd say I'd respect it for its crafts yeah, and like yeah. the construction of all of it, but yeah. it's not one I'll probably come back <laughs> to right, right. like for enjoyment yeah. in the future. Yeah. So I wanted to uh, move on to that with um, a couple other questions. Uh, first off, what do you think of the common statement we often hear nowadays of Hollywood's ran out of ideas mm-hmm. um, or, you know, people that say there's no original or good ideas or stories told anymore. It's just, you know, constant regurgitating. And uh, do you think there are great films with great screenplays out there today and how can audiences find them? Well, actually, this is the good time of year for that kind of thing because mm-hmm. this is award season. They, mm-hmm. they specifically – there's tradition in Hollywood where even the big for-profit companies where they're obviously there to make money and as much money as possible, but they also are interested in prestige. It's a very strange culture from what I've heard and read about Hollywood is that we think of it as this big money-making machine, uh, but then there are those people who are still interested. They want to have one or two big prestige pictures that shows that they, they are interested in the art part. So this is the time of year for those pictures, like the Todd Haynes thing. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, a couple of years ago when I saw Birdman, um, yep. and it was over Christmas break, uh, my wife and I were in that theater, and I think there were three other people, <laughs> and I walked out, and I literally said to her, I hadn't had an experience like that since 1985 when I saw Terry Gilliam's Brazil. Really? And, mm-hmm. and that was that. And so but that's one or two, three films a year out of all of the other stuff that is exist almost exclusively just to make money. Yeah, there, there does exist that um, Academy uh, yeah. art style. Yeah. Uh, Bennett Miller, are you familiar with him? I heard the name. He did Foxcatcher, <laughs> oh, yeah, 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 sure. uh, Moneyball, yeah. Capote. I yeah. love Foxcatcher, but it is the epitome of that Academy indulging the art a yeah. little bit because yeah. it's very slow. It's very character study-esque, but it's yeah. also – Steve Carell and Channing Tatum, you know, yeah. giving pretty conventionally engaging stories. Yeah. But it's a great movie. Yeah. Yeah. But, um, do, like, do you think Hollywood has ran out of ideas? I mean, with, with this whole wave of, uh, you know, the superhero stuff, the comic readaptation stuff, do you. Uh, that, that, that's been a critique for decades. Right. Um, and yet they keep making the stuff and it keeps making money. So I don't think. If they have run out of ideas, if they're doing the same thing over and over again, I don't think they care. <laughs> um, and the audience doesn't seem to care. Right. Now, this is a particularly or, or seems like it was seemed like it was going to be a really bad year for uh, for theatrical attendance. Last few weekends, um, the box office numbers have been dismal. Well, OK, well, four <laughs> made like 108, whatever the latest version of it is made like $118 million this weekend alone. Mm. So that stuff is going to continue to be there. It's going to continue to make money. 
Um, so I think we're actually fortunate that we do get those little gems every once in a while this time of year. Um, it makes us appreciate, you know, there is the opportunity still, thankfully, for that kind of thing versus the big monolithic capitalist machine, I guess. Yeah, I, I agree. Mitch, what, do you have anything to add to that? I was just wondering, are there any films like on your radar for this season? Um, I want to see. It's the new Alexander Payne movie. Um, downsizing. downsizing. Yeah. But from the trailer, it looks radically different mm-hmm. from, what was his last one? Nebraska? Was that the last? Alexander Payne did I believe a so. couple yeah. years ago, black and white, Bruce Dern. Yeah. Yeah, I've, <laughs> and I've seen it. I and it's so, that. But this thing with uh, Matt Damon where they get <laughs> shrunk, uh, it seems like a very different kind of film for him. I'll definitely go see it. The new Richard Linklater film is out, um, mm-hmm. and I'm a huge fan of his. I'm, Likewise. So, um, and this uh, it seems to be a different kind of story because his last one was about the college baseball players in the 80s, I think. Mm-hmm. Everybody wants Everybody some. Everybody wants some. Yeah. <laughs> and then this is three middle-aged men going to bury mm-hmm. the son of one of them. It seems like a very different kind of story for him, but still that character-driven thing. So. Yeah. Um, do you think audiences today are too adapted to conventional storytelling? I'd like, do you think that new ideas are even, do you think they're often embraced by the public? Uh, no, not most audiences. I think most audience, I talk a lot about this in my class where consciously or otherwise, and it's almost, it's almost certainly entirely subconscious audiences are passive and they have been trained. They're not conscious as conscious of having been trained in their passivity but they're trained to expect certain character types, certain structures, and a certain resolution at the end. And so that's what they want, whether they know it or not. And so when they, if you if you made an audience, I have, I have to say the word made, watch a film like Birdman, which doesn't fit any of those patterns, I, I think they would resent that, maybe even get angry because it's not what they expect, consciously or otherwise. They expect... All right. This they want what they've seen before, maybe just a little different. <laughs> yeah. Um, often, you know, I like seeking out opinions on films that I really love a lot. I love watching reviews of films that I love. Mm. And um, I often notice a lot of criticism is thrown at films that I love because I have a tendency to like really slow films. <laughs> People criticizing them for their pace. Uh-huh. And I always kind of ask myself, you know, I mean, is that really a valid criticism if it's not trying to be? A film of the pace that you're used to. I feel like there's a big problem in film criticism nowadays where the boundaries are being kind of narrowed more and more with what is what is the model of a film that an audience will give its attention to. It seems like that is kind of getting more narrow. Yeah. That three-act structure with rising action with a, a, a very uh, proactive hero not the one that's going to sit around and wait, but the one who's making decisions that drives the story forward and raises the action to the climax. And that's what they audiences expect. Um, and yes, there's a lot more of that now probably than at any other time in history. Um, but then I think there's always going to be, be people like us who are always going to seek out and, and, and find and appreciate those s- slower paced kind of things. Now you teach screenwriting here at the college. Yep. And, um, you know, as you're teaching, you probably have to tell your students um, more conventional rules to screenplay writing. (laughs) But I feel like you're more than aware that there are films that do subvert those rules that do find success. So do you think there's going to be a point where um, 
academia is more embracing of kind of encouraging students to go their own kind of route with filmmaking. I, I would or, hope or so. Or screen, screenwriting yeah, specifically. I would hope so. But at the same time, uh, um, our job is to train uh, people to, to, to be hireable <laughs> and in this case to make sellable products. So I absolutely start with the three-act structure. Right. And I say, I, I'm going to tell you right now that if you want to sell this script, your best bet is to write in the three-act structure. It's what the, it's the, by far the most films you you, you will ever see at a, a celebration cinema or any other multiplex movie theater. They're going to have a three act structure, and it's almost literally a mathematical formula. And if you have any plan, goal whatsoever, dream or fantasy of becoming a screenwriter, you're going to need to know that it, it's essentially a formula. The industry expects it. Readers in the industry look for it down to the literally counting pages. Uh, because Act One is supposed to be twenty five percent, Act Two is fifty percent. That being said, once we go through the three act structure, I teach what I call the observational structure, which is the much more character driven and can be very slow paced. Um, so we spend a whole section um, on that, and in fact, we look, we watch in its entirety, um, uh, sideways the Alexander Payne mm -hmm. film. Yep which I, is my, I use as the example of the, my observational structure. Um, and then we go into what, what I call and has been called the network structure, which is multiple characters interacting, not necessarily in a linear or certainly not action or plot-driven um, uh, structure. Uh, and the example I use of that, and we watch it in class, is Crash. Okay. So where virtually every character has an almost or very similar or almost exactly the same amount of screen time. It's very character driven, but those are a bunch of different characters. So those I would argue those are alternatives, <coughs> the observational structure and the, uh, the network structure. And we do see those. But for every one of those, there's a hundred or more three act structure films. Yeah, I was thinking about the uh, today on the drive over how. Um, even, you know, the length of films is something that seems really kind of uh, regulated. And I always wonder, you know, how I wonder how much great content gets cut from films sometimes for the sake of, uh, you know, time. Well, it, it actually used to be a lot more regulated than it is now. Oh, okay. um, in the days of the single screen theaters, <laughs> I mean, this is decades ago, but they could only run, you know, so many runs a day. So they really wanted the films actually shorter than longer. But now, um, if you have a big prestige picture, I'm trying to think of, uh, like a Wolf of Wall Street was three hours long. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, uh, that's a lot more permissible now in the days of the, obviously, multiplex theaters where ver most of them are going to be 90 minutes to two hours. But the, the, the bigger prestige ones, even some of those Marvel and they're, they're two hours yeah, plus. Yeah, they are. Those are lengthy. Because uh, yeah, they know in that case, they know the audience is going to stick around for yeah. that. So, uh, You kind of, I always notice that with like Paul Thomas Anderson too. His films are pretty lengthy, but mm -hmm. you know, they kind of seem to get a passing with Tarantino. Yeah, yeah. Again, it's, those are the ones that are the prestige pictures that right. the people who put them, who pay for the production companies and the studios that pay for that know that, okay, we have a certain market for that and we're willing to invest this amount of money. Um, meanwhile, we're going to do 10 others that are going to be more, are, those are going to be our profit, profit making machines. So. Right. 
So <clears throat> I guess uh, what are some clear uh, things that you could point out as things that separate a great screenplay yeah. from a bad screenplay? Oh, jeez. I mean, uh, I, 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 yeah. I assume you've, you've come across quite what, a few um, of That's really complicated. The, the, the short answer is a, is a quote, famous quote by a, a famous um, screenwriter, uh, William Goldman, guy who did Butch Cassidy and Sundance Kid, mm-hmm. uh, Marathon Man, All the President's Men, mm-hmm. Princess Bride. He has a quote. He started a book called uh, Adventures in the Screen Trade and literally starts with nobody knows anything. And he's talking about the whole industry, about not being able to predict when a film is going to succeed or not. But that I use that literally beginning in my screenwriting class is that there's all sorts of rules that you need. Three-act structure is basically a rule. Um, there's, there's no one or two or even three things that you can say this is what you need or, or to, what makes a great screenplay. I know what does for me. It's all character. Um, to me... Um, I don't care how cool the effects are, how special the superpowers are. It, if it, if it's if there's not an, an engaging character, something that attaches aud- audience me, um, uh, it, it, it's not going anywhere. And then you get the complication of well, you could have a really really strong s- script that that by the time it hits a, a movie screen, it's a completely different thing. So to say what makes a great screenplay. Uh, is it, it's that's that you can't answer that question, and and we almost never talk except in things like this. You almost never talk about the screenplay as separate from the movie, right? You, you talked about reviews. They'll every once in a while they'll talk about the script. It was overwritten or the structures. They'll they'll get that a lot in reviews. They'll say the structure it makes no sense. Well, maybe the screen in the actual printed page it did, <laughs> but when you're talking about watching a movie in terms of its structure. It went through shooting. It went through editing, probably re-editing. So the finished film, even when they critique a film and it's writing, they don't know. Nobody goes back and looks at the original screenplay. Right. So those the step between what the writer originally put on paper and what you finish on, see on screen could be a great movie. The script was mo- mediocre, vice versa. It could have started as a great script and ended up as a horrible movie. You mentioned... Um <clears throat> self-indulgence earlier with Charlie <laughs> Kaufman. There's a couple of films that I really love a lot that I think would probably fall into that category. Um, Buffalo 66 yeah. of Vincent Gallo. Yeah, yeah, I think yeah. that's a very self-indulgent yeah. film, but I think that yeah. it works. I think that there's a time where that can work. Uh, yeah, okay. So that's um, – I remember the scene sitting around the table with the parents and the gr- – kid. Not I was about to say girlfriend, but he actually kidnapped her, right? Yeah, yeah, Christina yeah. Ricci, yeah. Yeah. So if you didn't know – you're right. I think if you didn't know – that the guy wrote and directed it, <laughs> you might appreciate it more. But mm-hmm. you, for people who know that, okay, this guy wrote, directed, and stars in, boy, he gave himself a really meaty role, and there's a lot of time spent on that. And there's some editing character. things he does, a lot of like these kind of weird tonal shifts, yeah. Yeah. like the musical pieces, the yeah. singing. It's very like it's his first film, and he's just throwing it all up yeah, the wind. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I kind of like that spirit sometimes that yeah. a director will have, you know. But then that's a slip. It's a slippery slope because did you see Brown Bunny? Hey. <laughs> okay, I I like Brown Bunny, <laughs> right. but it, I like it more in theory than in practice. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> and it's like five minutes of motorcycle going around a track at the beginning or something like that. Yeah. Um. He actually <laughs> proposed that to a uh, con first or can and um. <laughs> he 
it, it got raked over the coals that the first one at Cannes because it was about forty minutes longer than the you know the one that we see nowadays. Oh, okay, yeah. But he had to go back and cut like forty minutes of just like motorcycle riding <laughs> yeah. and, and like pumping gas yeah. and stuff. But the fellatio stayed intact. <laughs> yeah, that very integral part of the yeah, film. Yeah, yeah. Mitch, you got to jump in on this. Um, I, I don't know what to say. <laughs> but yeah, that level of like indulgence. Um, I think there's times where it can work and times where it really, really can't work. Uh, I think a lot of that just has to do with inspiration. You know, I um specifically with a film like Suicide Squad. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you yeah, saw that yeah. by any chance. Oh, yeah, I, I think that's bad. That's bad indulgence. I think. Well, or pandering. Like they know there's there's an audience who's going to see that, uh, regardless of how bad it will. And it was. I think it made money. Um, mm-hmm. <laughs> I think with Suicide Squad, um, it kind of goes back to what you're saying about how ch- films change over the course of their production because there were. Yep. And this is um, a problem you can get with a lot of these comic book adaptations and these kind of like tentpole moneymakers. There's too, too many cooks in the what's the what's to make cooks ruin the broth yeah, or whatever yeah, it is. Yeah, you have like so many people, so many people with their own, um, are doing air quotes artistic visions. There you go. Trying to fight over the same um, product, basically. So that reminds me of. A movie that when I when I heard about it, um, I was really looking forward to it. Um, it was Cowboys versus Aliens. Aliens. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. And I'm like, okay, well, I haven't seen this before. <laughs> and again, on paper, mm-hmm. that, <laughs> yeah. Uh, Harrison Ford, Daniel Craig. This this should have been great. Mm-hmm. And I remember watching that at the theater, and <laughs> written by or screenplay by. There's five names, <laughs> and I'm like, that's not a good sign. Red, red flags are yeah. jumping on. Now, what that means is there was probably somebody who wrote the original screenplay or, or the, had the story, and the, the studio optioned the story and then probably hired a screenwriter or, or two because that's a big thing now is collaboration. They have mm-hmm. a screenwriting team, um, and they probably did a first draft, and then they probably tested it or whatever. And then they probably hired those extra two or three people and gave everybody the credit. Mm-hmm. So there again, <laughs> you're, what started as might have been a great idea, but over the process of it, it just fell apart or imploded. You want to think of it that way. Yeah. I mean, going back to uh, <clears throat> someone like Gus Van Sant, he has a lot of very uh, conventional films like Goodwill Hunting, yeah. Milk. And then he also has Last Days and Elephant. Yeah. And uh, how do you write a film like Elephant where <laughs> it's really a lot of observation? I mean, it's, it's, it's like when you go to an art museum and someone looks at a painting that's just a white canvas and they're like, oh, well, I could do that. Oh, well, I could set up a camera in front of kids playing football and call it a movie. I mean, like, do you have any kind of a response to that? I, honestly, I'd have to see the actual screenplays because I have a feeling they're not, again, in, in, in screenplay, in teaching it, there's a very, very, very rigid format. I mean, down to the font, 12-point courier. I mean, it's... It, the, the the rules about just how you write the screenplay are are very, very rigid. Well, that's if you're going to try to sell it to somebody else. But in cases like those films where the director 
if if he or she is not literally writing it, they're probably working with the writer, and they're the, all probably those rules get thrown out the window. So it may I, I make a joke in my screenwriting class that I'm teaching you based on the assuming you're going to go send this out blindly to an agent or at least a competition. You're writing what's called a spec script that it's supposed to follow all of the rules. However, if you plan to write and direct your own screenplays and you're never going to send it to anybody else, you're going to write and direct it, you could do it in crayon on toilet paper because (laughs) at that point those rules disappear. So I have a feeling that might not even look like what we call a screenplay at all. How much of it is like literally no dialogue? Quite a lot. Yeah, so if you pick up a typical screenplay – it's going to be mostly dialogue with some what's called scene action or, or, or descriptions of the visuals. Right. That thing, it probably looks like a short story or a novel or mm. something. So I'd I, 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 I be curious to see if they have a screenplay for that, what it actually looks like. Right. I mean, there, there, there seems to be a lot of uh, contingency. Uh, you know, we, we live in kind of a politically uh, volatile time right now (laughs) and i've heard the theory from some people that the reason why we don't seem to have a lot of films that go outside of kind of light subject matter like the superhero thing why that kind of seems to be the most in-demand thing is because a lot of people will attribute to things like you know political correctness or something like that do you really think that that plays a role in the kind of uh sanitization that films seem to have nowadays? I think it's the audience. Uh, I think the industry thinks, and probably correctly so, that this is what the audience wants. And judging from the dollars, <laughs> that seems to be the case. Yeah. Um, uh, I There there may well be um, uh, politically oriented filmmakers who are, are, are hoping to make more uh, clear statements about their uh, 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 politics, um, but that th- that stuff's got to get funded to to get made. Now, granted, that's getting cheaper and cheaper, mm-hmm. but then for people to see it, it's got to get distributed, and that's where a lot of the money is. Um, to 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 have a have a movie go out even to, to a few hundred screens and multiplexes that takes a lot of money. Believe it or not, still. Um, and and the companies that that might decide against picking up and distributing a politically oriented film, I in most cases, maybe all cases, I bet they're going they're not doing so. They're deciding not to distribute that film because of their politics. They probably say, well, that's not going to make any money. Why would I distribute that? So I think it really comes down to that. I think in a way, capitalism, although that's clearly a political structure, but it kind of like supersedes, you know political attitudes because it's about what can sell and what can't. Yeah. It's more private, you know, that kind of idea. Yeah. Yeah. So, but, um, Mitch, do you have anything to add to that? You think the role that screenwriters play like in the industry, in the movie making process has changed over the years? There's always been, again, since the earliest days, the, the screenwriter is like the least respected person in the mm-hmm. chain <laughs> again there's a it's um it's the charlie kaufman script um john cusack uh oh being john being malcolm. john malcolm. <laughs> it's, 
Is that one? Is that the one? No, it's Adaptation. It's Adaptation, mm-hmm. which starts with them on the set of being John Malkovich. Yeah, right, right. And the screenwriter, like, he's there and nobody knows he's who like he is. He's, like, in the corner. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> like, that's... Uh, that has some that's been the case all along. There are cases where it'll be in a director or producer's contract that the screenwriter's not supposed to be on set at all. That's mm. so weird to me as a as somebody who you know values the word as the beginning of it all, uh, I used to joke like you know the screenplay is where the m- movie starts. It might be the last place it ever ends up. Um, mm-hmm. I don't think that has changed. That tradition of the lack of respect. Never mind re- recognition, just disrespect for uh, uh, the writer is, is um, that's been a tradition in Hollywood for decades and decades. Mm-hmm. Do you think now more than ever is like the easiest time to make a film? Oh, technically, absolutely. Yeah. Um, again, my screenwriting class, I've been doing this for 10 or 12 years. And I, at the end of the very last lecture is how to sell it. And I, I try to de-emphasize that whole part from the start. Because to me, if you're thinking solely sell, 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 it's going to really shape how you write. And to me, it's like write it first. Get it done first. Nonetheless, we have to talk about how the industry works at least a little bit. That's at the very end. And there are – again, there are rules. Well, you need to have an agent. You can't get it sold without an agent. Okay, well, how do you get an agent? Most agents won't even talk to screenwriters unless their scripts – have been produced already. All right, well, how do you get your screenplay made into a movie? You get an agent. <laughs> it's a catch-22. Mm-hmm. I go through all that. Well, there's a difference between an agent and a manager. And da, 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 and Some agents will accept blind submissions, whatever. But then just within the last few years, I've been telling them more and more, or just make it yourself. The technology, we have it in this building we're sitting in. There are people we've had featured screen feature films made in this built well but but people and and equipment in this Mm -hmm, building right that is absolutely now you're not going to make you know avengers infinity war with the stuff we have in in this building but you could make especially your little character driven observational piece that absolutely that can be done now the key is and i mentioned this earlier is how do you get it to people to see Right. Well, you could put it online, and we had that happen with the the, the students who made their feature film here, and um, somebody pirated it and claimed it was their own. Put it on, <laughs> yeah, yeah. There's a whole backstory to that. I haven't heard that story. Y- yeah, um, it's been a few years, so I don't know. I think they resolved it. Uh, yeah. I think it took a cease and desist letter from the guy, but um, that's the key. Making it is absolutely a hundred percent easier than it was even just ten years ago. Right. But getting it out to audiences, uh, how do you get it to people to see? That still seems to be a, a roadblock. Right. Yeah. Mitch, you got anything else? I don't believe so. Well, this was really, really great to have mm-hmm. you on. I Definitely. really, really appreciate cool. it. Um, Kevin Corbett is a professor at CMU. Take one of his classes. If you're a young person trying to learn more about film, if you want to become a filmmaker, or if you just want to take a you know fun class about film, Kevin Corbett is someone that you should probably get in contact with, take one of his classes. Uh, with me, as always, is Mitch. Mitch, tell, tell the people goodbye. Goodbye, everyone. <laughs> Kevin, thanks a lot for coming on. Uh, this has been Moving Pictures. I'm your host, Brent Gunn, and thanks again.